0: Welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. This sermon features Bible teacher Timothy Atik, known as T.A. around here, and was recorded on Sunday, October 3rd. Thanks for tuning in. If you're in the area, join us next Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. And if you're part of FaithBridge Online, join us at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's T.A. Well, howdy. Hey, uh, good morning. It's good to see you. My name's Timothy Atik, and I'm the director of Breakaway Ministries in College Station. If we've Never been in the same room before. I'm so glad to be here at FaithBridge today. I want to start just by sharing with you uh, that I grew up in Dallas. I went to high school in Dallas. And I don't know if your high school did this when you went there, but uh, when I was graduating, my senior class did a poll, a senior poll. And for that poll, you could basically vote for different people in your class, for specific categories. And I actually have the newspaper from my senior year at Highland Park High School when the poll was published. And there were all different categories uh, for the senior poll. Some were really good and some were really bad. Like there was best looking, most memorable, best dressed, most dateable, funniest... But then there was things like moodiest and uh, biggest loudmouth, most accident-prone, worst driver. Um, Let's see what else is in it. Biggest complainer. No one wants that. I want to share with you guys what I was voted, okay? So my senior class voted me into three categories. The first one that they voted me into, I took third place in, uh, in just plain nice, okay? Third place, okay? So here's what that means. It means that my senior class believed that I was nicer than about 375 other people, but if you're really looking for someone nice, you didn't start with me, okay? There were two people that you started with, you were like, they were unavailable, so we've got Timothy Attique, okay? He's just plain nice. The second category that I got voted into is I took third place again in uh, most sincere. So again, I told the truth. You could kind of, whatever I said, you could trust more than 375 people. But again, you didn't start with me if you wanted the most honest person. Two people, more sincere, but I was still in the most sincere category. The third category that I got voted into, this time I took second place. And I'm gonna be honest, this one stung a little, but I got second place in most religious. So apparently my class thought that I was a very religious person, but there was someone more religious than me. Part of me just wants to be like, how do you like me now? Like if you could just see me now, if we could just run that pullback one more time, I'd like to see if it would still be second place. Anyway, I'm not bitter about it. Uh, when I think about this poll, you know what I think people were trying to say by voting me into these different categories? I think what they were basically saying is, you know what, Timothy Attique, like, he's, he's a good guy. Like, you know what, he's just plain nice. He's, he's pretty sincere and religious. Like, he's a, he's a good guy. And then I went to Texas A&M University for four years. And I think during my time in college, the majority of people, not all people, but the majority of people would be like, you know what, I, I, he's, he's a good guy. Like he, he goes to church. He, he serves in different ministries. He, he's fairly, he's just plain nice to people. I feel like he's pretty sincere. I think during college, for the most part, people would say, you know what, he's, he's a good guy. And even now, I think... I would hope most people would be like, yeah, he's a, he's a pretty good guy. He leads Breakaway. He, he does his best as a dad. He coaches his kids on the soccer field sometimes. They provide meals to people who've just had a baby. Like, they're, he's, a, he's a good guy. But here's the thing. Like, my goal is not to be known as a good guy. I want to be known as a godly man. Like, that's my desire. Like, I don't give a rip about being known as a good man. I want to be known as a godly man. And that's my desire for each one of you, that you wouldn't just settle for being good, but that your desire would be to be godly. And the reason that I say that is if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, listen to what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Do you hear what that's saying? God, with his divine power, has made available to us everything that we could possibly need to live a godly life. So if that is true, if God has resourced us with everything that we could possibly need to live a godly life, why would we ever settle for just being good? And when I talk about godliness, what I'm talking about is this. Jerry Bridges explains it this way. Godliness is devotion to God which results in a life that is pleasing to Him. That's my hope for every person in this room, is that it would be your desire to live a life of devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to Him. Let me just say it a different way. Here's my hope for every person in the room. That Jesus Christ wouldn't just be a part of your life, but that he would be the passion of your life. Because when Jesus Christ is part of your life, you know what? Your your life is just about being good. Like, yeah, you do some stuff with Jesus. You go to church because that's what you do to be good. But when Jesus is the passion of your life, it's not about being good. It's about being transformed into godliness because of what Christ is doing in you. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to step back into the life of David. Each time that I've been here over the last several months, we've just been walking through the life of David, and what I want to do is I want to look at a very important story in the life of David, and what it's going to do is it's going to give us four keys to moving from good to godly. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. This morning to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, you can just slip up your hand and uh, one of our ushers will supply you with one. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to be reading today. And if you're new to the Bible, the, the life of David is a very fascinating life to study. Uh, David was the second king ever of the nation of Israel. He's the best king. That Israel ever saw. He was dubbed the man after God's own heart. He had many high highs, like conquering a giant named Goliath, but he had many low lows, like the fact that four of his kids died prematurely. So this is what we're talking about, a guy with a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows. His triumphs are compelling for us to look at and desire in our own lives in his trials, make him relatable to us. So I love the life of David. And we're going to see four keys to moving from good to godly. Now I'm going to warn you, we're going to be reading a story about some people moving a box on a cart pulled by some oxen. I don't know if that sounds relevant to your life right now or not. I don't know if you've been in that scenario recently. But if not, this story can feel irrelevant at first. But I promise you, it is extremely relevant to every person's life. Here we go. Chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read you 1 through 11. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose And went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said... How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Okay, all eyes on me. I'm giving you this morning four keys to moving from good to godly. The first key is this prioritize God's presence. Prioritize God's presence. The reason that I say that is because we just read a story about the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. Um, If you're new to the Bible and you hear me say the word Ark, you might think we're talking about a boat. We are not talking about a boat. We are actually talking about a box. If you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was the most Important and valuable piece of furniture in the nation of Israel. Okay, HGTV would have done a whole series just on this box. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant was about a four foot by two and a half foot box, um, and it was placed in the Holy of Holies. So inside of the tabernacle and then the temple, which was the house of God, there was one special room where this important box was placed. And this box, this room was closed off by a veil. And no one was allowed into that room during the year, except one day one person, one priest, one time a year would be able to enter into the Holy of Holies and he would wear a rope around his ankle in case he died when he was in that room. People could pull him out without having to go in for him. Why was it possible that he might die in that room? It's because this box was said to represent the presence of God. So when God, when his presence filled the tabernacle, once they had made the tabernacle, his presence was said to rest right on top of this box. It's referring to the presence of God. So we see David right here towards the beginning of his reign as king, and he is showing us what he prioritizes. This box, the Ark of the Covenant, had been displaced from the tabernacle, and his predecessor Saul had not cared that it was displaced. And so that's why we find David saying in First 1 Chronicles 13.3, he says, let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. So this is what David's saying. He's saying, for my predecessor, the presence of God was not a priority. He did not seek it. This Box has been displaced, and we've allowed it to be displaced for decades. And David is saying, This is what I prioritize. I prioritize God's presence. We are going to seek it. We are going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. We're going to place it in our midst, and our community will revolve around the presence of God. So, this is what David is saying. David is showing us what he prioritized. He prioritizes God's presence. I tell you this just to say, if you want to move from good to godly, one of the best things you can do is prioritize God's presence in your life. What does that look like? Well, let me ask you this. Can you think of a time in your past where you were confident that God was there, like you sensed His presence? Can you think of a time in your past where you just look back, whether it was a trial or a really incredible triumph in your life, where you just look back and you're like, you know what, God was there. Like, I can look at key monumental moments in my past, and I can realize God was there. Like, when I felt like my life hit rock bottom because of sin, God met me there. When Kat and I started dating and we got married, God was there. When we had a miscarriage, God was there. When uh, my friend passed away serving our country, God was there. There's these key moments in my past where I can look back and say, God was there. But here's the thing, and I hope you don't miss this. I don't want to get to heaven one day and get perspective on my life and realize that God was present in my life, not just in the monumental times, but he was present in the mundane, in the monotonous times of life. Like, I don't want to get to heaven and realize, yes, God was there in the monumental, But you know what? He was also there when I was driving in my car or watching Netflix. He was there when I went for a run that one time. He was there uh, every moment that I felt down or alone or had to make a decision. He was there when I wondered about my future or felt stressed out or didn't feel enough. He was there in every moment of laughter with my wife or sweet moment with my kids. He was there in the monumental times and in the monotonous times. See, when we talk about moving from good to godly and we talk about prioritizing God's presence, what has to happen is there has to be a shift in our mind from God was there to God is here. Like for you to wake up each morning Not trying to get back to some place in your past, which was like a spiritual mile marker where you look back and you're like, oh, that was a good season in life with God. But for you to wake up and say, today is a day when I can have my best day with Jesus because he is here. So let me just encourage you, if you're too busy for God, you're too busy. And let me just encourage you, you can meet with God every single day, every single day. Often we treat God like he's a puppy. You know, like we we spend time playing with him in the morning and then he walks us to the door and sits in the window and tilts his head and watches us go off to work and then we go off to work for the day and then we come back and then he's there to greet us. You know what, when you have a quiet time in the morning and you say amen, I believe God's like, great, all right, let's go to work. And he actually gets in the car with you. He goes to work with you. He sits at your desk with you. He goes to lunch with you. He is there when you're working out. He doesn't need to work out, but he's still there. (laughs) It's just a shift from God was there to God is here. Would you prioritize his presence in your life? Would you wake up to his presence? I was in Kyle Field last night. Heartbreaking night for the Aggies. You know what the crazy thing is? People take their infants to Kyle Field. And I've shared this before, but I just want to remind you, it is amazing that infants can sleep through 100,000 people cheering on the Aggies. They're asleep to some great things happening. Let that not be true of us. That God is putting on beautiful displays of His goodness in greatness in our lives, and we're just asleep to it. May we wake up this week, prioritize His presence. Number two, if you want to move from good to godly, tremble at God's holiness. Tremble at God's holiness. Do you, do you remember what happened in the story? Let's just, let's just read an excerpt of it just one more time. Verse 3, look at what it says. It says, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now, let me stop right there and tell you this. When we read that they were moving the ark of God on a cart, a red flag should go up in your mind. Because that's not how God told them to move the ark. God actually gave very specific instructions. See, this box had four rings on each of the corners, and God had told them to put poles through the rings, and it was to be carried on their shoulders. Okay? What is happening here is that Uzzah and Ohio are doing what many of us do which is, I can do this a lot faster. Okay, if it's going to get done right, I need to do it. You guys are thinking about carrying this on your shoulders. I'm going to strap this thing to a cart. I'm going to hook it up to some oxen, and I'll have it there in half the time. And so watch what happens when these men try to do things more efficiently than God. Listen to what it says. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So this is the story that we're dealing with, people. These people are moving a box on a cart moved by some oxen and the cart begins to tip, the box begins to fall off and a guy puts out his hand to catch it and God kills him. So, let's just real talk real quick. When you hear that there's a guy who's actually trying to be helpful, God's important box is falling so he reaches out to catch it and God kills him. What's your initial thought? Seems harsh, right? Seems harsh. It's kind of like they caught God on a bad day. It was like the world was really sinning that day, and God was like, I can't take it anymore. You touch my box, you're dead. It's just like you, you caught God on the wrong day. But here's the thing. If you're If your initial response was God was too harsh, your response is misinformed. Because the issue isn't that God was too harsh, the issue was that Uzzah was too careless. Because God had actually spelled things out for them. He said, If you touch it, you will die. And the reason that God said that they would die is because it is holy. And so that is why I tell you if you want to move from good to godly, one of the best things you can do is tremble at God's holiness. Okay, when when we use the word holy, a lot of times we we use that word, we sing about that word, but we don't define that word accurately. Okay, the the holiness of God, if I were to ask you, what does it mean that God is holy? Your tendency might be to say, you know what, it means that God is is pure. And you're not completely wrong in saying that, but it doesn't really encapsulate the meaning of the word holy. Holy is the Hebrew word kadosh. And kadosh means awesome or singled out. It can even mean cut off. So it's the idea that God is, in a sense, cut off from all of humanity in His greatness and, and awesomeness. It, I like to refer to the holiness of God as the, as the otherness of God. That He is so other than anyone or anything that we have ever seen that when we try and explain who God is in our own wording, it's laughable because we don't even come close to scratching the surface of grasping the beauty and the greatness of who God is because he is so other than anything that we've ever seen or known. God tries to help us get there in Isaiah 55. Listen to what he says. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, However similar you think we are, let's just be clear. The way you think is very different than the way I think. And the way that you act is very different than the way I act. And God tries to get us there when he says this. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is saying, look, we are on different planets. We are in, we're in different galaxies when it comes to the way that we think and act. It's the holiness of God that caused people in Scripture to respond in extreme ways. Like if you were to just look at the way that people responded when they they saw or heard God, that gives you a glimpse at the holiness of God. So, for example, the nation of Israel hears God speak from Mount Sinai and they believe that they had just had a near-death experience. So they run to Moses and they're like, Moses, you're going to go up that mountain and you're going to talk to God for us because if he speaks again, we might not live. So you get going. Okay? Isaiah, when uh, when he... gets a vision of the throne room of God, do you know what Isaiah's instant response is? He goes, woe is me, I am lost. I am lost and I just realize that I'm a foul mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. Is there anyone in your life that you're like that with? Like you get around the room and be like, I am sorry, I just woke up and realized just by being in your presence, I am lost and I am a foul mouth. Like you, just your presence helped me see that. No. Or Ezekiel. He gets a vision of God, and his body, his knees just buckle, and he collapses on the ground. Is there anyone in your life like that? Like, they just walk into the room, and you're just like, like, you're like, oh my gosh, I I am sorry. I have no clue what happened. You walked in, and my body just collapsed. I mean, John, in the book of Revelation, gets a vision of the glorified Christ. He hits the ground, and he is literally like, I'm dead. I died. And Jesus is like, you're not dead, man. Get up. (laughs) This was people's responses to a holy God. Um, When I was growing up, my dad would play racquetball uh, most weeks. And so I would tag along with him. Because uh, my dad would play with one of his close friends, and his close friend would bring his son, so his son and I would hang out. So my dad called up the YMCA. He reserved a racquetball court for him and his friend, and we showed up, and there were some high school kids that were playing on the court that my dad had reserved. And these high school kids just began playing right into the time slot that my dad had reserved. So my dad very kindly knocked on the window to just inform these high school kids hey, It's time, and this high school kid gave my dad the middle finger. Here's the problem with giving my dad the middle finger. (laughs) At the time, my dad was the chief psychologist at the Dallas County Juvenile Department, which was the place that kids who had done something wrong went to work it out. (laughs) Not only that, my, my dad's friend was a Dallas County judge. So when that high school kid came out, my dad very clearly and firmly informed that kid who he had just flicked off, and fear struck him. And I remember that kid's friend turning to him and saying, Dude, you cannot do that. Because he was in the presence of one who commanded his respect. And I just think about that, and I just wonder if sometimes we're a little bit like Uzza. I wonder if there are times where we are far too careless before a holy God. You know what? Yes, Jesus is friend and Savior, but he's also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God is holy, holy, holy. And so what does this look like for us? I'll just share in my own life. There are times where I'm flying in hot to my time with God. Like, I've got things to do, I've got a list of things to work through on my Todoist app, and I know that I'm going to need to get to those things. So there's, there's been times where I'm just coming in hot, and I'm like, okay, God, and I just, I just start talking. And as I begin praying, there have been times where I will pray that God is holy, holy, holy. And as I do that, it's like I get to the second holy, and my body just downshifts because I'm reminded of whose presence I'm sitting in. You think about God telling Moses to take his sandals off because the ground was holy. And sometimes, man, we just walk right up to the burning bush and we're like, I've got five minutes for you. And so there's times when I'm praying, they'll just be like, and God, you are holy, holy, holy. And my posture changes. I go from slouching to sitting up or bending a knee because I'm reminded of who I'm dealing with. And so one of the best things, if you want to move from good to godly, it's to tremble at God's holiness. Number three, treasure God's commands. Treasure God's commands. Listen to what David says in 1 Chronicles 15, verses 13 through 15. When, he's, when the same story is being recounted, David says this, he's talking to, to his trusted men, he says, because you did not carry it, talking about the ark, because you didn't carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule." So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. Do you see what David's saying? He's saying, hey, we were too comfortable. We were too careless. God had actually spelled out for us exactly how to move the ark, and we did it our own way. He had spelled it out, and we're like, you know what, God? We can do it faster. Let just, just, just let, me, let me do my thing. We'll put it on a cart, pull it with some oxen. And so David finally says, no, no, no. We're going to do God's will His way. Pastor Charles Swindoll says this. He says, if the Lord cared enough to ride it and cared enough to preserve it, He cares enough about the details to have you and me pull it off precisely his way. Isn't that interesting? Precisely his way. Here's the problem. Jean-Paul Sartre, French existentialist philosopher, he just nails this. He says this, man is the being whose project is to be God. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying man is the being whose project. Like the thing that we put our hands to, the thing that we make our project is to be God. So what I'm calling you to do, if you want to move from good to godly, is to treasure God's commands. Here's the problem, is that we want to play God, which means we want to do things our way. We want to move His cart, we want to move His box our way. God has given us His Word so that we can know His will and accomplish it His way. But what we want to do is we somehow want to live in God's will, but we want to do it our way. So like we want to figure out what is most comfortable for us, and we hope that we can kind of stay within God's will. Here is how that looks in our lives. Like have you ever been in a moment where maybe you read something in the Bible or you're talking about spiritual issues in a group setting and you hear what god's standard might be or maybe you listen to me or ken or someone on this stage and something in you just says i just don't feel convicted about that like we can be talking about anything related to sin and something in you just says you know what i i just don't feel convicted about that like my convictions are different than that do you see what's happening there You are expecting God's commands to submit to your feelings, and because you don't feel convicted about that, then you assume that that command is not relevant to your life. The issue is not with God's commands. The issue is with our hearts. Just because we don't feel convicted doesn't mean we shouldn't feel convicted, If anything, it might show a callousing of the heart. I was talking about this with uh, one of our volunteers with the ministry that I lead. There's just this hardening of this volunteer's heart where she is bent on sin, and it is clear that her heart has grown hardened to the things of God. And so we have to be very careful that we don't take this word with a highlighter and a whiteout pen where there's certain commands that we're like, yes, I'm all about that, and then there's others that's like, I'm just going to wipe that out because I just, don't, I just don't feel convicted about that. Our feelings are irrelevant when it comes to God's commands. God's spoken, and so we listen and Jesus tells us one of the best ways that we can show our love for, for him is, by obe- is through obedience. John 14, 15, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But you, do you know what happens with the story? I don't have time to read it, but do you know what happens? David takes a few months off and then he regroups to move the the ark of the covenant and when they move it do you know what they do they they go a few feet they stop worship band sings a song they worship they're like all right let's go a few more feet they stop worship the lord and they're singing and they're dancing and they're celebrating and you know what you see you see obedience and joy going hand in hand obedience and joy going hand in hand. Pastor friend Todd Wagner says this, he says, God isn't trying to rip you off, he's trying to set you free. See, sometimes we view God's commands as thieves, that they're trying to steal from us. But God isn't trying to rip you off, he's actually trying to set you free. I remember talking to one of my sons a while back, we were sitting at the dinner table and he was talking about this student at school that was just really giving him a hard time and just making his life more difficult at school. So here's what I told my son. I said, I want to encourage you to go to that kid at school and say, hey, look, let me just ask you, is there something that I have done to wrong you? Because if so, please let me know so that I can ask your forgiveness for it. But I see the way that you're treating me, and it's not right. And as I'm telling my son that, I can see the fear in his eyes. I can see that he doesn't trust the words that I'm saying because he thinks that what I'm telling him to do will actually steal from him. But here's the thing. I know the power of bitterness because I've allowed bitterness to grow in my own heart in the past. And so I know that bitterness is like a weed that can overtake anything healthy in the soul. I'm not trying to rip my son off. I'm actually trying to set him free from bitterness. And I just wonder if our perfect father in heaven is looking at us, us, his children, just saying, look, I love you. My commands aren't to steal from you. They are actually to set you free and to point you towards joy and walking in all of my goodness. That's why I say treasure his commands, not just obey them, but treasure them because his commands are, are good for our souls. Finally, if you want to move from good to godly, I just encourage you to reject man's opposition reject man's opposition look back real quick just at verse 16 watch what happens when david comes home it says this as the ark of the lord came into the city of david uh the daughter of saul looked out of the window and saw king david leaping and dancing before the lord and she despised him in her heart this is david's wife he walks in the door he's been dancing he's been singing he's been celebrating and she walks in she's like you just made a fool of yourself You just made a fool of yourself. And David is basically like, you know what, I'll get more undignified than that because I don't give a rip about what other people think about me. I am in the business of worshiping the Lord. And so I'll just tell you this, no one in your life is going to have a problem with you trying to be good. But man, when you pursue godliness, some people won't like it people will look at you and be like, oh, you're legalistic. Let's just be clear on what legalism is. Legalism is believing that you have to fulfill certain rules and regulations in order for God to accept you. It's ratifying certain rituals and traditions saying, these are necessary in order for God to love me. That's legalism. But obeying God's commands, knowing that He already loves you and accepts you, and you obey them as a way to just show your love for Him, that's not legalism. That's just pursuing godliness. But when you pursue godliness, your life will be convicting to others, and people hate feeling convicted. Reject man's opposition. What do we do with a talk like this? Let me just encourage you with three things. Number one, before you leave meet with God today. God is here. Meet with him. As we sing one more song, meet with him. Number two, when you get home today, just share with a friend or a family member one command that you want to fully obey in order to walk in freedom and display your love for God. And then number three, every day this week, let me just encourage you, Right when you get out of bed, get on your knees and just remind yourself, just say, God, I want to start my day remembering that you are holy, holy, holy. And then I just want to share this and then I'll be done. Some of you here this morning might be saying, you know what? I, I'm fine not being godly. I'm fine with just being good. Like I'm good with being a good guy or a good girl. Well, just remember what Jesus says in Mark 10, 18. It says, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good. No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Here's what that means. You might be good in your own eyes. You might be good in other people's eyes. But the real question is, are you good in God's eyes? And the scripture is clear in Romans chapter 3. No one does good, not even one. This is why we desperately need Jesus, because he's the only one who's ever been good. And he came and he did what we couldn't. We talked about prioritizing God's presence. Jesus was rejected by God so that we could be accepted. Okay? He was forsaken by the presence of God so that we could be accepted into it. We talked about trembling at God's holiness. Jesus was and is holy, and he came to earth for those of us who were unholy. And he did business through his death, burial, and resurrection to make us right with a holy God. We talked about treasuring God's commands. Jesus fulfilled all of God's commands perfectly so that he could be a suitable substitute for each of us on the cross, and he made a way for each one of us who could not fulfill God's commands to still be in a right relationship with him. And then we talked about rejecting man's opposition. Jesus was rejected by man so that we could be accepted by God. This is why we need Jesus. Do you know him? If not, the invitation to you this morning is to come and put your trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love for us. And we just remind ourselves that you are, in fact, holy, holy, holy. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us unholy people to be made right with a holy God. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just settle for being good people but that the desires of our heart would be to be godly men and women. I pray that you wouldn't just be a part of our lives, but that you would be the passion of it. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.